Today is Monday, 2006, October 16th. Today is Lecture 18th, The Apple and the Moon on Newtonian Gravity, beginning the first of a two-week lecture unit called The Laws of Nature. We'll begin in just a moment. All right, so today we are beginning lec uh, Unit 4, so we're getting close to the halfway point in this class. We're going to leave a lot of the historical material behind. Last week was the most heavily historical stuff. But we're still going to make certain touches on the historical story because it's good, as I've said before, for us to know where our ideas come from as much as what those ideas are. This particular unit is called the Laws of Nature. We're going to be talking this week about gravity, mostly, and the consequences of gravity for understanding motions. And then on Thursday, we're going to tie up a loose end, namely this proof that the Earth is actually moving independent of the astronomical demonstrations. So this week is Gravity Week. Next week, we'll be talking about light, matter, and atoms, and finally end up with a discussion a week from Friday on telescopes and other things like that. So we'll be building up the tools so the physical tools that astronomers use to be able to ask questions of the heavens and get interpretable answers back. So that this lecture and the one that follow are going to be the two most mathematical of the entire quarter. Um, it's unavoidable to be mathematical. I don't feel any shame. In, in fact, I like using mathematical arguments. Um, the reason for doing that is because this is a demonstration of how we came to understand why things orbit and how gravity works. And so it's necessary to use the mathematical arguments because that's how it was done. It's a quantitative science. It's not just waving hands and dancing around on the stage with a Marvin doll. So today's lecture is going to be called The Apple and the Moon on Newtonian Gravity. And the key ideas are as follows. We're first going to make a brief return to Galileo Galilei, who early in his life and then wrote up late in his life after his imprisonment by the Inquisition, his law of falling bodies and his study of moving objects. The law of falling bodies is an observation that all falling bodies experience the same gravitational acceleration. And we'll demonstrate that and we'll talk about some of its consequences. This idea was then picked up by Isaac Newton, who we saw last Friday, formulated the three laws of motion. And together with those, needed to uh, define what we, he called the gravitational force. And he formulated this in terms of something called the law of universal gravitation. Gravity is an attractive force that happens between all pairs of massive objects. Not just me and the Earth, or the Moon and the Earth, but in fact between every massive body, as we'll see. And furthermore, one can get a long, wordy statement of this. That the gravitational force that two objects feel with each, from each other is proportional to their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. This is the first time in this class we're going to encounter an inverse square law. We're going to see these a lot in various contexts, so keep an eye out for it. This is one of the very important mathematical concepts that comes into play. An inverse square law force is what gives us all of Kepler's three laws, which we'll talk about in detail tomorrow. Well, first we need to talk about the law of falling bodies. Now, we know Galileo today primarily for his work with the telescope and, of course, for his troubles with the Roman Catholic Church over his espousal of the Copernican principle at a time when people didn't oppose the church lightly. And, of course, in Galileo's case, we saw he made a lot of enemies who used the legal structures of the church to make an example of him. And it was an extremely effective example. In many ways, if one wants to mark the end of the Italian Renaissance, you can pick no better date than the trial of Galileo in 1633 because almost nothing of consequence happened in Italian Italian science or philosophy after that date. The, the trial had its, its effect. Nobody wanted to talk about it anymore, at least in Catholic countries. So, for example, in Fra Catholic France, the great philosopher um, Descartes actually left and, and went to Sweden 
Protestant Sweden because would, he knew he would be safe from the Inquisition in these places. And the advances in Italian science, which had been considerable up to the time of Galileo, simply stopped. And the pace of that scientific advancement then moved north and moved into the Protestant countries, primarily England, as we saw with Isaac Newton on Friday, but also into Germany as well in later centuries. So while Galileo was under house arrest by the Inquisition, he picked up some work he had done as a, as, as a young man on fundamental research on the nature of motion and moving bodies. And in doing this, Galileo was, was, wrote a book called The Dialogue on the Two World Systems. One of the things that came out of that was to really lay the foundations of modern mechanics, or what we now would recognize as modern classical physics. And it was brought, of course, to its culmination by Isaac Newton in the following generation. But there's one particular observation of Galileo's that's of relevance to us in today's lecture, and that's an observation about the way in which bodies fall. This is observations that have gone back all the way to Aristotle, and a lot of thinkers through the Middle Ages picked this up. But it was Galileo who had the key insight that unlocked part of the secret of falling bodies. What he did was he tried dropping various weights. Now, if you've ever tried to drop any kind of weight on the ground, you'll notice that the rate at which bodies fall under the influence of gravity, I've got a nice visible tennis ball to demonstrate this, is very rapid. And measuring the rate at which something falls over short distances is really quite tricky, because remember, the timing devices you have at your disposal are really rather coarse. So one of the ways you can slow down the fall of an object is to roll objects down inclined planes. And that's, in fact, what Galileo did. He came up with a number of very ingenious experiments to, if you will, slow down the fall of bodies and study the rate quantitatively of their fall. When he did this, he came up with a statement called the law of falling bodies. In the absence of air, heavy bodies and light objects fall at the same constant rate of acceleration. So let's take our, our tennis ball here. And I've got another lightweight object here, a nice little red sheet of paper that should be visible in the back. And I'm going to drop these from the same height. Now, which one's going to hit the ground first? Anybody? The ball. People keep saying the ball's going to hit the ground first. Well, let's see what happens here. Let's uh, lower the cross-section of this sheet of paper a little bit. To hit the ground at the same time. Now you say, ah, oh, professor, you cheated. OK, fine. Let's try this 50-gram tennis ball and a half a kilogram, 500-gram stainless steel ball bearing. Nice big fat one here. Has 10 times the mass. They hit it exactly the same time. There's a famous experiment that was suggested by Galileo, but he almost certainly never did it, where he dropped unequal weights from the Leaning Tower of Pisa and showed that they land at approximately the same time. But the problem, of course, and why I played that little game crinkling up the paper is because of the problem of wind resistance. And so if you'll excuse me here, what better place to test against a problem of wind resistance than perhaps on the surface of the moon, which has no atmosphere? This is a very brief video clip of astronaut David Scott from Apollo 15, who with his partner landed near Hadley Rill on the moon in August of 1971. The spacecraft behind there is the lunar excursion module named Falcon. And of course, it's not playing, wouldn't you know? Falling objects in 
gravity field. And we thought that uh, where would be a better place to confirm his uh, findings than on the moon. And uh, so we thought we'd try it here for you. Uh, the feather happens to be appropriately a falcon feather for our falcon. And I'll uh, drop the two of them here and hopefully they'll hit the ground at the same time. How about that? Galileo, the consummate experimenter, would have loved to have seen that experiment. It's unfortunate it occurred nearly 320 years after his death. The law of falling bodies is a well-known effect. You can basically prove it by dropping various things. Back when I was in Santa Cruz as a TA, I dropped a grapefruit and a bowling ball off of a high bridge. You know, there's all kinds of ways you can demonstrate it. But the, the moon landing one is perhaps the most, most spectacular of that because it really shows that when you remove the effects of air resistance, when you move the effects of the environment around you, gravity works in such a way as to make objects fall at exactly the same rate which means the objects are somehow knowing something about the gravity, but doesn't know about how much each of the individual objects weighs, doesn't know about their mass. But explaining that is much more difficult to, to understand if you don't have a proper notion of forces or know what it means to change your motion or be set in motion. And of course, into that, enter Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton formulated the law of mutual gravitation and told, said it was a universal law, that it happened between all massive bodies. So it's important to look at what the, universe, the law of gravity is like in the Newtonian formulation. The first simple fact is that gravity is an attractive force. That means that it acts to bring massive objects closer together to each other. So in the absence of any other force acting, if I take two massive objects and set them apart in empty space, they will tend to move towards each other. They will both feel a force attracting them each to the common center of mass. The second piece is that gravity is a universal force. This is a tremendous leap of, of, of an, an idea. Gravity works everywhere the same in the universe between all pairs of masses. It isn't just simply that something that happens on the Earth and I use a different gravity on the moon or a different gravity on the sun or in deep space. Gravity is gravity all over the universe. It's simply an attractive force that acts between every pair of, of massive objects. And the final piece is that gravity is a mutual force. And this is the one of the least intuitive of, of the nature of gravity. And it's basically related to Newton's third law. Gravity works always between pairs of massive objects. So between me and the Earth, between the Earth and the Moon, between the Earth and the Sun, and even between me and any other person I happen to pick in this room. There is a small gravitational force pulling towards each other. It always happens between pairs of massive objects. And it's always an equal and opposite force, all of the third law of Isaac Newton. So gravity is the sort of force that will bind all matter together throughout the universe. It binds matter to matter over long distances through this agency of gravitation. Now, the gravity force between any two objects needs to depend upon certain quantities. And the most obvious thing it should depend upon is the mass. The first of the thing, of course, is how much gravity you get should depend upon how much stuff you've got. The bigger the object, the greater the gravitational force that you should be able to exert upon, upon objects around you. So more massive objects should give you a stronger force. And it works in the way you think it does. Twice the mass, twice the gravitational force. So it's directly proportional to the mass. But it also depends upon the distance between them. If you're further away from the gravitating source, you should feel a weaker gravitational force. 
So if I'm st further from the earth, I should feel less gravity than if I'm standing on the surface of the earth because I'm further away from that matter that is pulling on me. How much it should change, of course, is the next question. But it should work in a direction that it gets stronger as objects move closer together and it should get weaker as objects get further apart. And we kind of see some pieces of that in the laws of planetary motion. Remember that Kepler's second law stated that a line from a planet to the sun sweeps out equal areas in equal times. When the planet is near perihelion, when it's close as it ever gets to the sun, it moves faster. It feels a stronger gravity force from the sun. When the planet is furthest from the sun, it moves slower. It's feeling a smaller gravitational force. How much bigger or how much smaller? Well, that depends upon how far away you are in the exact law. But that's it the mass and the separation between them. The law of gravity does not depend upon the shapes of the objects. It doesn't matter whether I'm going to try to drop you know, a tennis ball and a Marvin doll. If I take a tennis ball and a Marvin doll and hold them up here at the same distance and drop them, they hit the ground at the same time. They feel the same influence of gravitational force from the Earth. It doesn't matter the color. I could have used a red tennis ball or I could use a black tennis ball. It will still feel the same gravitational force. And furthermore, it doesn't matter the composition. I could do the same experiment with an apple and with a stainless steel ball bearing. But I could actually change it to where I have a really, really nice spherical apple and made of stainless steel and I can carve a little round ball out of apple core and it would still feel the same gravitational force, follow the same gravitational rule. It doesn't matter what it's made of, what its shape, what its color, composition, nothing. It only matters what the mass is, the amount of matter contained in the object, and this is where that distinction we made a few weeks ago between mass and weight matters. It's the mass, the amount of number of atoms, the amount of stuff in there that matters, and the distance the two bodies that are pulling on each other are from each other. This leads us to Newton's formulation of the law of universal gravitation. This is a law we're going to see and use over and over again because it's the primary force that acts upon objects in the solar system. Stated in words, it's as follows. The force of gravitational attraction between any two massive bodies is proportional to their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between their centers. So we have two of the pieces we thought we would have. It's proportional to their masses. I double the masses, I double the gravity force. But it's inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. Inversely proportional means as one gets bigger, the other gets smaller. They change in opposite ways. But notice it's not simply inversely proportional to the distance, it's inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. So as I take two objects and move them two times further apart, the gravity force gets not two times weaker, but two squared or four times weaker. And this is an example, the first time we've seen in this class, an inverse square law. In, in this particular case, it's an example of an inverse square law force. There's at least one other inverse square law force that works in the universe, the law of basically electrostatic attraction or repulsion. The electrostatic force is an inverse square law force. We're also going to see inverse square laws for the fall off in brightness of an object as we move further away from it. Objects get fainter as the square of the distance you are from the source. This inverse square is basically, really comes down to a geometric argument. You can imagine, ima imagine if you will, from a spherical body, you sort of have a, imagine sort of zones of gravitational force sort of emanating outwards from it, if you want to view it that way. Well, the further you get, of course, that force gets spread out over a bigger area. 
since area goes like the square of the size scale, not surprisingly, as you get further and further out, the amount of gravitational force gets spread over a larger area. So you see a little bit less gravity, if you will, or electrostatic force or whatever it is you're working with when you move further out. So you could almost have guessed inverse square law by simply making a geometric argument. And in fact, that's what some people did. In fact, even Newton made that guess and then showed that an inverse square law force, by assuming that, led naturally to an explanation of not only the law of falling bodies of, of Galileo, but also led to showing you that the three, Kepler's three laws of planetary motion must therefore follow from first principles. It's not simply an empirical observation. It actually can be explained in terms of its in inside physics. And part of what we're going to be doing today and tomorrow is showing that demonstration. Now, that's a lot of words for describing the gravitational force. We really want to turn it into an equation. We want to express it mathematically because this is where we're going to get the most, tr the most mileage out of this particular idea. Newton's gravitational force law can be expressed mathematically as follows. The gravitational force F is equal to a constant G times the product of the two masses, mass one and mass two, divided by the distance between them squared. So there's a lot of quant quantities in this formula. Let's go through them. F is the force of gravity. It's measured in units of Newtons, for example. It's how strong the force is. M1 and M2 are simply the masses of the two objects. Remember that gravity always works between pairs of objects. So I can't write down the gravity force of one object. I have to write down what the gravity force of one object is on another massive object. And very clearly, for example, on the Earth here. Right? I've got the mass of the Earth, and I'm some distance away from its center. I've got this tennis ball has one mass. And I ask, what's the gravitational force on this tennis ball? Compare that to the gravitational force on the ball bearing. The ball bearing has 10 times the mass of the tennis ball. Therefore, I should have 10 times the gravitational force because the mass of the Earth hasn't changed. And as I'm holding them here in each hand, they're the same distance from the center of the Earth. And that's the D here, the distance between their centers. It's not the distance from the surface of the tennis ball to the surface of the Earth. It's not how high off the ground I'm holding them. It's how far this ball bearing or this tennis ball are from the center of the Earth, which is about 6,700 kilometers below our feet. So we got the force is, is proportional to the product of the two masses. In the, in the case of the example I just gave, M1 would be the mass of the Earth. And M2 would either be the mass of the tennis ball or the mass of the ball bearing. And D is the distance between their centers, which as I've stated the problem for my example, is the radius of the Earth plus whatever little bit I happen to be above local sea level by standing on this stage. The last piece is big G, which we call the gravitational force constant. I'll show you the value, but you will never use, probably use that value in any of the homework sets or certainly not in any of the problems that I'll be asking in the, in the quizzes. Because G is just a number. It's what we call the gravitational force constant. Sometimes we call it the gravitational coupling constant. We'll say a little bit in just a second about how it's measured. But really, you don't have to know it. All it is is a number that makes the units come out right. So that if I put in, say, masses in, in grams or kilograms and distances in centimeters, I get force in the appropriate metric unit, be it newtons or dynes or some other silly thing. Let's just sort of start in a more abstract way. Let's talk about two massive bodies. Now, the convention we usually use is that when we have two unequal masses, M1 is always the big one and M2 is always the small one. If you want to, think of them as primary and secondary. And that actually helps. 
So here we have two masses, m1 and m2, separated by a distance d apart. The force of gravity between them, f, will be g times the product of their masses, m1 times m2, divided by the distance between them squared. Now the statement I'm going to look at here is let's keep the masses the same but change the distance. So let's say I stretch these things so that now m2 and m1 have their centers 2d apart. So I've moved them twice as far apart before. Well, then the force is simply the product of their masses times this g. That's not going to change in anything we're doing. Divided by the distance between them squared, which is now 2d quantity squared. Well, 2 squared, of course, is 4. And it's 1 quarter gm1m2 over d squared. In other words, as I've moved the masses two times further apart, the force of gravity between them, of each pulling on the other, has gone down by 2 squared, or a factor of 4. So the force is one-fourth as strong as it was when they were close together. I can also push them closer together. So let's shove them now so they're half the distance they were before, d over 2. Again, the distances that are important are the distances between their centers. Well, in this case, again, I write down the gravitational force law. F is g times the product of the masses divided by their distance, d over 2, quantity squared. This is one of those nasty fractions of a fraction, so you do the math, 2 squared is 4. They're closer together. It must get stronger, because we're talking about an inverse square law force, and it gets stronger by the square of the distance change, <coughs> 2 squared is 4. So now the force felt is 4 times greater. So by simply changing the distances between these objects, I can actually change the force by the square of that change in distance. So I start out with one force, just what it is at starting point, I move the masses two times further apart. They get two squared, or four times weaker. Or I move them two times closer. They get two squared, or four times stronger. So it's an inverse square law. As one gets big, the other gets small. The other piece of this is that the amount of gravitational force depends upon the masses of the two objects, as we've already seen. So let's now play the game that we have the two masses, m1 and m2, but I'm now going to keep the distance between them fixed, and I'm going to change their masses. It's the product of the masses. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to bulk up the primary until now it's got twice its initial mass, 2 times m1. In that case, the gravitational force is g times the mass of the first one, which is 2m1, times the mass of the second, which is unchanged, m2, and the distance between them hasn't changed, d squared. So if I make the primary mass two times bigger, the gravitational force gets two times bigger. This is in direct proportion to the change of the mass of one of the objects. Well, let's say that I say, well, let's bulk up mass 2, the secondary there. So now it's 2m2. Now the force is g times the mass of the first object, 2m1, times the mass of the bulked up second object, 2m2, divided by their still unchanged distance squared. Now it's going to be four times the original gravitational force, because I have two times the mass of the first times two times the mass of the second. So it's directly proportional to the product of the masses of the two. If I make one bigger, the mass goes up in proportion. If I make both of them bigger, the, mass goes, the gravitational force goes up in proportion to both. So it rises up and goes down. So to review, an inverse law means that as the distance gets larger, the force gets smaller. As the distance gets smaller, the force gets larger. 
How much? By the square of the distance. However, it's proportional to the product of the masses. As I increase the masses, the force goes up at a fixed distance. As I decrease the mass, the force goes down in exact proportion. So those two pieces are absolutely essential. And if you encounter, for example, gravity problems on the homework or even simple ones like this on the quiz on Friday, that's the kind of thing you've got to keep in mind. Ask what's changing. Is the distance changing or the mass changing or both? And take them into account. Now, what is this constant g? I've kind of been sweeping it under the rug for the last little bit. I haven't said what g actually is. I just let it float in each of the equations. g is basically a number that gives the magnitude, the size of the gravitational coupling between two objects. If I could find the cosmic fuse box and change the force of gravity between everything in the universe, what I would do is I would find the knob that would let me change the gravitational coupling constant g. If g is a really big number, that means the gravitational coupling is very strong. If g is a very, very small number, the gravitational coupling is very weak. Now, we think of this as actually a constant in the sense that not only is g a constant on the Earth, it's the same number on the moon, it's the same number everywhere through the universe. And in fact, there's even pretty good reason to believe that g is exactly the same number at all times in the past that we've been able to measure. Now, the demonstration of that is a little bit beyond the, 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 the uh, scope of today's lecture. But if you take, go on to take Astronomy 162, people have actually speculated on what would be the effect of having g be stronger or weaker in the distant past in the universe than it is today that has observable consequences that are not seen. People still argue about it, but most people, I think, would agree that g is at least, for the observable time of the universe, back about 13 billion years, the same number. It turns out that the gravitational coupling constant, even though gravity seems like a real strong force to us, space it, trying to break away from gravity just isn't very easy, it's actually a very small number. In metric units, it's a number about 6.7 times 10 to the minus 11 Newton square meter per kilogram squared. It's got some wacky looking units, but that's pretty much what it, what it is. Now the Newton is a rather unfamiliar unit to many of you. It's the metric unit of force. It's related to the pound. Remember back when we talked about weight versus mass. Now the distinction really becomes important. It turns out that one pound is equivalent to about 4.41 newtons. So for example, I, I keep calling this a half a kilogram or 500 gram ball bearing. In fact, this is an older ball bearing that was made in an American company. It's actually a one pound ball bearing. And so what I feel as I hold it up in the Earth's gravity force, I feel a force trying to push my hand down as I hold out this one pound ball bearing of 4.41 newtons. Or if you will, it's a little over a half a kilo, it's still 4.41 newtons of force. Or if I put this on a scale with a one pound mass, it's a one pound of force, one pound weight. Now G, this number I've given you only to two decimal places has to be measured experimentally. And because it's so weak, it's really hard to measure experimentally. The way we measure it is by looking at masses in the laboratory and watching them on super high precision balances as they deflect towards each other. This is an example of one of these experiments. This is a device at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Washington, DC. Um, this is one of these so-called so Cavendish balance 
was actually invented in the, in the generations after Newton to measure the gravitational force. The trick behind a Cavendish balance is these are pure copper masses. You bring other copper masses into play, and then you swing them slowly, and the gravitational force of the outer masses swinging tugs on the inner masses, which are suspended on a really fine thread, and you measure the slight deflection they feel as the distance between the masses on the outer ring and the inner ring change. It's an extremely fine measurement. It turns out that of all the, what we think are the constants of nature, things like the speed of light, um, a constant called the Planck constant that governs things that happen on the atomic scale, uh, the charge of the electron, and the gravitational force constant, the gravitational force constant is the most poorly known of all of them because it's so terribly weak in the laboratory. It's really hard to measure g, and we only know g to about 14 decimal places. Compare that to the speed of light, which we define to be about 8, and some of the atomic constants are known to ridiculous precision, like 14, 15, and 16 decimal places. But we only know gravity to about 4 or 5. It's really hard to measure it because gravity is so weak. In fact, gravity is the weakest of the forces of nature, as we'll see next week. But let's go back to the story of Newton. We need to look at how Newton formulated the law of universal gravitation. How did he come up with it, and how did he demonstrate that it was a universal force? That dropping weights on the Earth like Galileo did, or rolling balls down an inclined plane, has anything at all to do with the moon, the sun, and the stars. I mean, after all, you have to demonstrate that the same force that you're experimenting with in the laboratory has something to do with things that are going on in the heavens. So we're going to follow through that demonstration here by starting out with the simplest, starting out on Earth. We're going to start by standing on the Earth, and we're going to drop an apple. I have a nice apple here. It's a nice little gala apple from my lunch. And as I hold it up, there is going to be a mass of this apple. I don't know what it is. It's, it's probably about 200 grams, 150 grams maybe. We're standing on the Earth. The Earth has a gigantic mass. I don't happen to have it in, in my head. It's like 10 to the 26 kilograms, 10 to 26 grams or so. It's really small. It's about thousandth the mass of the sun. And we're standing about 6,700 kilometers away from the center of the Earth. So I can write down what the force of gravity on this apple is. In fact, I sense that force of gravity because remember last week I said that gravity always, uh, forces always work in pairs. If the apple was released, it would feel that force and accelerate downwards. But holding it in my hand, my muscles have to produce an equal and opposite force to hold the, the apple up. And so I, I have the sensation of weight, a sensation of heft, due to the gravitational force. And I can write down mathematically what that is. The force of gravity on the apple is this g, which I'm going to stop saying, times the mass of the apple, times the mass of the Earth, <laughs> divided by the radius of the Earth squared. The difference between the equatorial radius of the Earth and where I'm standing on this stage is so small it's approximately equal to the radius of the Earth at sea level. And that's what we're going to use for the distance. And that produces a certain force. So what is the apple's acceleration? If I take this apple and release it, it accelerates. It starts going from zero to some speed where I dump down here and catch it so I don't mash my lunch up and have applesauce for lunch. Well, Newton's second law tells us what that acceleration is. Acceleration is proportional to the force applied and inversely proportional to the mass. Acceleration is the force the apple feels divided by the mass of the, earth, of the apple. Okay? Well, what is that? Well, I know what the force is. It's just the gravitational force. So I put those together. 
And I have the acceleration is equal to the gravitational force, this GMAME over RE squared, divided by the mass of the apple. Oh, look. The mass of the apple appears in both sides of the equation. And it cancels out. So the acceleration felt by the apple, A, is simply G times the mass of the Earth divided by the radius of the Earth squared. I know what the radius of the Earth is. I know what the mass of the Earth is, or I, I do if I bother to look it up this morning. And I know what G is. So I multiply these numbers together, and I get a number that's about 9.8 meters per second per second. That means for every second the apple falls before it hits the ground, it gets faster by another 9.8 meters per second. So in the first second, it's, for the first instance, it's zero. One second later, it basically is moving at 9.8 meters per second. The second second, it's moving at 9.8 plus 9.8, or 19.6 meters per second, and so on up the line. Its speed increases nine, by 9.8 meters per second every second of fall. But notice, because of the way the force of gravity works, the acceleration is independent of the mass. That means if I s decided, instead of dropping the apple, I drop a ball bearing that weighs five, ten times as much, how fast does it accelerate? G times the mass of the ball bearing times the mass of the Earth divided by the radius of the Earth squared, the gravitational force, it's a bigger force. It's five times the gravitational force, five times the force through my muscles to hold this ball bearing up. But the acceleration is force divided by its mass, so the mass cancels, and it accelerates 9.8 meters per second per second. Galileo's observation of the law of falling bodies is explained by the fact that, basically, by Newton's second law and the law of universal gravitation. Newton's third law comes into play in a somewhat non-intuitive way. All forces come in equal and opposite pairs. So I can ask, what is the force of the apple exerted on the Earth? After all, the Earth is a mass. It exerts a force on the apple. So we always think about the apple feeling the Earth's gravity and falling towards it. But forces come in equal and opposite pairs. So that means as I hold the apple here, the apple's mass is tugging upon the Earth in an equal and opposite way. How much is it? G times the mass of the apple times the mass of the Earth divided by the radius of the Earth squared. How much does the Earth accelerate towards the apple? It's the force of the apple upon the Earth divided by the mass of the Earth. The acceleration is the force divided by mass of the Earth, which is g times the mass of the apple divided by the radius of the Earth squared. Well, I can actually work that out. It's going to be the same acceleration of the Earth, of the apple on the Earth on the apple, 9.8 meters per second per second, but now multiplied by the ratio of the mass of the apple to the mass of the Earth. I dare say that that's going to be a really teeny tiny number. So small that I might not even care. But it's still there. And here comes the counterintuitive part. I'm going to use the ball bearing for this. The ball bearing is drawn towards the center of the Earth by the force of gravity of the Earth upon the ball bearing. But less obviously is while that ball bearing is falling, the Earth is actually attracted upwards towards the ball bearing a little teeny tiny amount, and they meet somewhere in the middle. The amount of difference in the meeting is the ratio of their masses. So while the ball bearing falls 
two meters, the Earth probably moves up about the diameter of an atom. But it moves up because the forces always work in equal and opposite pairs. <coughs> this is totally counterintuitive for throwing around ball bearings, but when you start talking about planets moving around stars or two stars of comparable mass moving around each other, and all of a sudden it's no longer trivial. They move towards each other, towards their common center of mass. It's just that for most things falling on the Earth, this is such a small amount that we don't, aren't sensible of it. So we can use the acceleration of, the, of this gravity to do all kinds of interesting things. For example, I can measure the acceleration of gravity empirically. I can do what Galileo did, drop weights or roll them down inclined planes, and I measure 9.8 meters per second per second. I can also measure the radius of the Earth. Eratosthenes essentially did this to 15%, but modern techniques give me a number of 6,378 kilometers. So I've been saying 6,700 kilometers in class, so clearly I got that number backwards. So it's 6,378 kilometers from here in round numbers to the center of the Earth. I can measure that geometrically, playing games with shadows on, on, on sticks. So I've got two, easily two relatively easily measured numbers. They're related by taking that equation I wrote down before for the acceleration of the apple or the ball bearing or anything else by the Earth's mass. And I can algebraically turn it into an equation for the mass of the Earth in terms of the measured acceleration of the Earth, the radius of the Earth squared, and our friend g. I punch in those numbers, and I get the number I could not carry in my head, 5.98 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. That's how we measure the mass of the Earth. Obviously, I'm not going to find a spring scale big enough to sit the Earth on, much less be able to move it to it. So the way I measure the mass of the Earth is I look at how bodies near the Earth's surface accelerate, take the measurement of the mass of the radius of the Earth and the measurement of the gravitational force constant, and I derive the mass of the Earth. This is how we measure masses in astronomy. I watch at the effects of that object's gravity upon its surroundings, either falling bodies on the Earth or maybe the fall of other objects around them, their orbits. And this is how we measure the masses of objects without touching them, more or less. Which brings us, of course, to the orbit of the moon. So this is all demonstrations about the Earth. But I now want to make a demonstration about the space, about objects that are not on the Earth. Let's answer a simple question. What keeps the moon in orbit around the Earth? Well, the first law of Newton, the law of inertia, predicts that if there was no gravitational force acting, there was no force binding the Earth to the moon, then the moon would simply travel off in a straight line at a constant speed. Remember the donut swinging around on the string the other day. When the force was released, when the donut broke, it took off in a straight line path. The same would happen to the moon. If no force is acting, it would move in a constant speed in a straight line unchanging motions. Basically, the moving object consequence of the law of inertia, the first law of Newton. But the moon is not moving in a straight line path. It's moving in a curved path, an elliptical path, falling constantly around the Earth. So why is it getting deflected into a curved path? If it's getting deflected into a curved path, not only its speed, but its direction is changing, which Newton tells us, aha, it's feeling a force because it's accelerating. The moon's curved path is acting that way because some force is acting upon it. The moon is deflected from the straight line path it wants to follow by the law of inertia by the activity of gravity. Where's the gravity coming from? The gravity is coming from the mutual attraction of the mass of the Earth for the mass of the moon, separated by their distance. 
So if no gravity was acting, the moon would simply travel off in a straight line at a constant speed. But because there is a gravitational force, the moon's path is deflected by a small amount from the true straight line path by the force of gravity. So gravity causes the moon, if you will, to fall a little tiny bit as it moves to one side. So let's now look at the fall of the moon. Let's answer some questions. How far does the moon fall in one second? The answer is about 1.4 millimeters, 0 0.00136 meters. So every second, the moon falls by that much away from a straight line path. How far does an apple fall on the Earth in one second? Well, if I got it up towards the ceiling, it would fall approximately 4.9 meters. Newton also knew one other fact. The moon is about 60 Earth radii away from the Earth, whereas the apple that I've been playing with all morning is one Earth radius away. So let's do the numbers. The moon falls by about 0 0.00136 meters in one second. It is 60 Earth radii away. And the acceleration of the moon due to the mass of the Earth is, 60 times, is g times the mass of the Earth divided by 60 Earth radii quantity squared. The apple falls 4.9 meters in one second. It's one Earth radius away, so its acceleration is g times the mass of the Earth times divided by the radius of the Earth squared. So now I have two equations for the relative acceleration of the moon and the apple. Both contain g, both contain the mass of the Earth, both contain the radius of the Earth. This allows me to measure exactly the relative acceleration of the Earth and moon. The ratio of the deflection, how much it deflects, should be the same as the ratio of the acceleration, because the deflection measures the change in motion. Change in motion, all of the second law, is acceleration. So the amount the moon deflects compared to that of the apple is the ratio of the acceleration of the moon compared to the acceleration of the apple, which is this looking nasty looking formula. But notice, g and m go away. The radius of the Earth squared goes away. And we're left with 1 over 60 squared, or 1 over 3,600. In other words, the moon deflection is 1 3,600th deflection of the apple here on the Earth. Does that actually work? Is that the right number? We know the deflection has to be 0 0.00136 meters in order to make it go around the circle. Is that going to be 1 3,600th how much the apple is deflected from a straight line path at the surface of the Earth? Well, the observations, again, show the deflection of the moon is 0 0.00136 meters, about 1.4 millimeters. The apple deflects in one second by 4.9 meters. The prediction is that the deflection of the moon is 1 3,600th of that of the apple, or 4.9 over 3,600, or 0.00136 meters. So the Newtonian gravitation prediction is exactly the observed deflection of 0 0.00136. And you've got to know that when Newton saw the numbers come out that good, he knew he had something. What Newton demonstrated was that the fall of an apple is exactly the same as the fall of a moon. The same gravity law governing the fall of the moon governs the fall of an apple. It's the same rule. It isn't a separate rule for the heavens and a separate rule for the Earth. The old Aristotelian idea that the Earth was different is simply wrong. But why does it orbit the Earth? 
Well, how far would the moon travel in one second? Well, the answer is the moon moves to one side about 1,000 meters, about one kilometer. How far would it move away from the Earth in the same time? Well, not surprisingly, it's how much it fails to be, it, it would fail to be deflected if gravity wasn't working, about 0.0136 meters. So the amount that it falls in that one second is the amount just to bring it back onto its curved path. Surprisingly. It basically offsets the straight line motion exactly. In pictures, what's happening is the moon wants to move to one side, but it feels a force pulling it towards the center of the Earth. That causes a slight deflection. At each place it moves along, it feels a deflection towards the center of the Earth. As it tries to move away, it gets pulled back. And when you tie all of those together by making the intervals of triangles smaller and smaller, the moon moves around in a circle. In other words, what the moon is doing is it's falling around the Earth constantly all the time. So there's nothing mysterious about the motion of the moon. It's feeling a central gravitational acceleration. It simply falls around the Earth. Gravity is the universal glue that binds the entire universe together. And here is its demonstration. And tomorrow, we'll look at its consequences for explaining other orbits.